Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the Tragedy of Cinema's Twilight Zone. You're looking at a species of flimsy little two-legged animal with extremely small heads, whose name is Man, Warren Markison. Age 35. Samuel A. Conrad, age 31. Hey, let's get ready, Sam. We've only got a couple of hours. They're taking a highway into space. Man unshackling himself and sending his tiny groping fingers up into the unknown. Their destination is Mars. And in just a moment, we'll land there with them. Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host Jimbo, and once again I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, ADZ. ADZ, how you doing today? ADZ is here, and he is back in the fifth dimension. It is, uh, I'm knee deep in snow. I think it's the frozen. Yeah. Frozen fifth dimension the right frozen, now. Frozen tundra fifth dimension. We could go on and on about that. Hope everybody's doing alright out there, and they're safe, and... Uh, safe and sound. I know Jim. Well, this is go ahead. This is definitely a remote uh, podcast because I am in a hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, while Eric's back in our hometown of Indiana in Indianapolis. So this is definitely a remote uh, remote episode. And as you can tell, we're obviously doing this ahead of time before it gets released. So it's probably sunny the day you're listening to this. So, <laughs> but yes, here we are, episode twenty five. Of the Twilight Zone from season one, uh, people are alike all over. Um, there is some very interesting uh, facts behind this, uh, and some real life uh, discussion that we'll talk about. Uh, so I don't want to get into it right now, but we'll go ahead and let Eric take it away. Eric, all right. People are alike all over. This is the Twilight Zone episode number twenty-five from season one. It was directed by Mitchell Leeson. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And the teleplay, of course, was by Rod Serling. And it's actually based on a book called Brothers Beyond the Void by Paul W. Fairman. And uh, first broadcast on March 25th, 1960. 
And the total production cost for this episode was $55,454.64. And when we adjust that for inflation, we're looking at in today's dollars, we're looking at about $484,874.01. So I believe this particular episode was one of the top two most expensive episodes uh, in at least season one, maybe the entire series. Jimbo? Actually, uh, a very interesting thing that I found is that um, there was a, there was a, the, the book, obviously, but Sterling really wanted to do an adaption of this for the Twilight Zone for any price and by any means necessary, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah, right, but right. But the screen rights the screen rights were eventually purchased the most costly of the season at $2,500. Additional costs included the 2250 fee Sterling received for drafting the teleplay, the $360.10 for secretarial fees, and Sterling's $750 per script supervision fee as agreed upon under his contract. So the total was $5,860.10. This is the second most expensive story was uh, The Hitchhiker, which we've already covered, which totaled $5,204. Yeah, so obviously this was something that he really was, uh, he wanted, um, and he was willing to pay. So uh, that would explain why uh, the production costs were so high for this particular episode for script alone. I mean, was that what'd you say twenty five grand when you include all the fees? Uh, uh let's see here. It was it was uh it was two thousand five hundred uh oh, for 2, the screen rights. That okay. was that was for the screen rights. And then another two thousand two hundred fifty fee for selling received for drafting the teleplay, so he got he had to make the teleplay up top of that. So it was like right. five thousand eight hundred and sixty dollars and ten cents for the whole cost or whatever. Right. So that's a huge chunk of their overall budget there in in the scripts. So yeah, definitely one that he uh, was very uh, impressed upon to to make and to put on TV. Uh, Jimbo, did you want to go ahead with the cast next, or? Sure. Um, this has a pretty famous actor in it, uh, Roddy McDowell, uh, who plays Sam Conrad. Uh, he's most notably known for Planet of the Apes, where he played Cornelius, uh, but he was also in Fright Night, where he starred Peter uh, as Peter Vincent. Uh, you had Susan Oliver as Tina. She was in Star Trek, the original series, as Vena. Uh, Paul Comey as Warren Markison. Um, he was in Howard the Duck as Dr. Chapman. I know one of Eric's favorite movies. Uh, you had Byron Morrow, um, who plays the first Martian. Yes, this is a Martian episode, so um, get ready for it. Um, he was in Star Trek, the original series, as Admiral Comac. Uh, Vic Perrin as the second Martian. Um, he he was done a lot of voiceovers and cartoons and stuff. I know he'd done like uh, one of the Scooby Doo's and stuff like that. And then you had Vernon Gray as the third Martian. So Eric, that's your cast. All right, how many folks there? About one, two, three, four, five. About six main roles in the cast. There, I'm going to read a little bit of the plot here as uh, we move along in the episode. Uh, the plot is basically a, a rocket piloted by two astronauts, which I think in the first uh, adaptation there was only one astronaut that actually went to Mars, and the, they have there are two astronauts that have a conversation, but actually only one went in the, in the book, Brothers from the Beyond, or Brothers Beyond the Void. I'm sorry I misquoted that, but I think uh, Rod uh, you know, adapted the teleplay to incorporate two astronauts, but... 
Um, the two astronauts head out on a mission to Mars. One of them, Marcuson, is a positive thinker who believes that all people are alike all over. And uh, he let's let's hear from Marcuson himself right here. And uh, he'll tell us what the theme of this entire episode is. But I've got a philosophy about people. I mean all people, Sam. They're the same all over. Well, I'm sure that when God made human beings, he developed them from a fixed formula. They'd be the same here on Earth as in the furthest reaches of space. People on Mars, wherever they're able to exist, they'd be the same. Okay, so you heard from Markson, and he really gives us his uh, philosophical viewpoint and uh, the namesake for this actual episode. The other astronaut in our uh, story is Conrad. And Conrad has a more cynical view of human implanetary nature. Uh, the impact of the landing on Mars is so severe that Markison is critically injured. And knowing that he is dying, Markison pleads with Conrad to open the door of their ship so that he can at least see that for which he has given his life. And Conrad refuses, still fearful of what may await him outside as Markison dies. And now alone, Conrad hears a rhythmic sound reverberating upon the ship's hull. Expecting some unamiable evil, his apprehension turns to joy when he opens the hatch and sees Martians that indeed appear to be human and have mind-reading abilities and give the impression of being most amicable, uh, especially the beautiful Tanya, who welcomes and reassures him. That was interesting too, Jimbo. Like, You remember that one line? Where uh, Tina says, I promise you, no one will hurt you. No one will hurt you. And, you know, that, that kind of stuck out to me as, you know, as we move along. Uh, well, I think, early in I, think what was, I think what was really interesting about this is that when he finally, they finally, he finally gets out of the hatch or whatever. Number one, they know who he is. But number two, he's communicating and talking with them because he's like, how do you know English? <laughs> you know, and they're like, you're not, you're speaking our language subconsciously. Right. So I thought that was a very well inter uh, interesting point of this episode, too. Yeah, they have some sort of, like, telekinetic power, and that comes up later in the episode, too, where uh, when they build the house for him, and mm -hmm. uh, we'll get to that uh, in a second here in the plot, but when they go to build the house for him, one of the Martians says, well, you know, because uh, Conrad asked him, well, how did you know how to do all this? And he said, well, we basically mapped your mind. Your your thoughts are very clear and like concise. And so we built it by basically scanning your mind. So I thought that was, uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, so let me uh, go back to where I left off here. Uh, so Tina, she welcomes him and she reassures him. And the hospital, hospitable locals lead their honored guest to his residence. Uh, and I just talked about that a little bit. An in, interior living space furnished precisely in the same manner as one on Earth, albeit a living space in the 1960s middle era of uh, middle class America. Um, Conrad relaxes but soon discovers that his room is windowless and the doors cannot be opened. This is a this is the start of the twist in the episode. One of the uh, walls slides upward, and Conrad realizes that he has become a caged exhibit in a Martian alien zoo. And Conrad <laughs> picks up a up a sign that says "Earth creature in his native habitat." 
and throws it on the floor as he, as, excuse me, as Tina tearfully leaves. In the episode's closing lines, Conrad grips the bars and yells to the heavens, Marcuson, Marcuson, you are right. You are right. People are alike. People are alike everywhere. And that's just a quick summary of the plot. And uh, we'll work back through the episode and kind of highlight some things as we go along. What, Jimbo, do you have any trivia or things that actually stick well, yeah, to you that you have written um, down? I do, but 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 one of the first things I like to talk about is the fence at the very beginning, the barbed wire fence, um, where you see Marcus and Conrad discussing their future of leaving Earth or whatever in the opening scene, is the same featured in the opening scene of Third from the Sun. Right. Uh, well, in the former episode, as Sturka left the planet, an exit-only sign behind one of the security guards was reused for the opening shot of the Twilight of uh, this Twilight Zone adventure, repositioned while the no-smoking sign remained where it was. Also, the exterior of the Martian landscape was actually the huge painted cyclorama of the desert landscape of Altar 4, which was originally created for, once again, Forbidden Planet, which we're going to have to just watch that and do an episode on that, I think, because there's so many ties back to this of each episode. I'm saying. And it took up the the entire soundstage at MGM, so I thought that was very well... Interesting. It's 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 always interesting how many times that they reuse plots or not plots, uh, props, right? Uh, and backgrounds from even movies and not even that, but other episodes of the Twilight Zone. Like we've talked about the staircase that shows up in so many of these episodes in season one um, and everything else. Just a question, real quick here: the Pac-Man symbols in the background in the scene were they also from inside the ship? Were that were they also from Forbidden Planet? I thought I read that. that I, I thought I read that somewhere, or they were, they were from another. They were an adaptation from another like 1950s sci-fi movie that we've mentioned several times. If it wasn't for the, yeah, for yeah, yeah. Planet, I know um, I read it somewhere, but it says the interior of the wreck ship included registered gauges in the background, described as a duplicate of the Paramount Studio logo, which were originally props from the Krell Laboratory from the 1956 motion picture The Forbidden Planet. There you go. <laughs> so. Eric, I'm going to have to buy that, and we're going to have to watch that. I guess. I mean, it's everywhere here. (laughs) Um, This also, I just have a a quick note that this was... uh, I I wrote down in my notes that this really has a Star Trek-esque type theme, and there's a really good reason for that, because the original pilot of Star Trek, uh, the title was was called The Cage... It was later Mm -hmm. reworked into a two-part episode called The Menagerie, included plot points similar to that which touched upon this episode, particularly the aspect of humans being put on display for study. Coincidentally, the the pilot also co-starred Susan Oliver, who plays Tina in this uh, Twilight Zone episode. She also was in a similar role and had the task of making the captive feel more at ease. So she really... uh, she really got typecast for this uh, role, I guess. And she was really good at uh, at delivering. Um, so that was kind of interesting to see um, why it had such the Star Trek esque feel. You know, it really had that feel. If you know, if you look at the costumes, the togas. You know, obviously that was kind of a cliched uh, Martian type uh, costume and get up in the 1960s sci fi. The beautiful leading lady who is the, the alien, and that, of course, is Tina, and um, the backdrop, and, of course, the spaceship, and all the props and stuff, that, that kind of really, uh, uh, you know, it kind of pulls you into that that feeling of a, a Star Trek 
type episode, but I just thought that right. was interesting. Well, not only that, but uh, Paul Comey and Roddy McDowell became really good friends on this episode, too. I thought that was really cool, too, that they actually uh, became friends just from working on the Twilight Zone together. But also back to Susan Oliver, she recalled an issue of Starlog that this this was a lot lots of fun. Roddy used to take me to lunch at MGM. He used or he had practically grown up there. He used to do all these hilarious impressions of big movie moguls. And she also said about Rod Sterling that he was a very spe- he was very special and that he was a nice, gentle man. So I thought that was very. Uh, she said he was very modest and self-effacing. So I thought that was very well uh, an insight to. Uh, Rod Sterling's character outside of the movies too. Yeah, or TV. Yeah, um, I read some other things. You may have it. I don't want to steal your thunder, Jimbo. But about Susan Oliver, I don't know if you have anything down about her. I don't, no, go for I it. I did a just. I didn't really write a bio, but she was a really accomplished, um, you know, pilot outside. Uh, she actually flew a couple missions, um, and she was um, really like a pioneer uh, as a uh, airline pilot. Um, she accomplished a lot of things outside of acting, and I don't have all of the notes. Uh, but she lived, uh, led a pretty interesting life uh, outside of acting. Uh, you know, not to mention that she was very attractive and beautiful actress, and did very well in these the two episodes that I, uh, whether it be Star Trek or um, the Twilight Zone. But I just thought that was interesting that you know she was very accomplished uh, outside of uh, acting. Now, now, do you think she got inspiration from Amelia Earhart? I don't know. That'd be a good question. That'd be something that would be very interesting um, to read. But um, it was like a transcontinental flight, I think, where I read somewhere that uh, she was part of, I think it was called like a powder puff team or something like that. And she was <laughs> a, fear, a fearless pilot of some of these things that I uh, read about her. And she uh, broke some world records. And I can't recall it all now, but it was very interesting to read about her. And then also just a little bit about Roddy McDowell, our main character here. He was born in Herne Hill, London, England. Um, and he was born to Winifred Lucinda Co- Cochran, an Irish-born aspiring actress, and Thomas Andrew McDowell, a merchant seaman. And Roddy was hmm. uh, enrolled in elocution courses at age five. And by age 10, he had appeared in his first film, and it was entitled Murder in the Family in 1938. And he actually co-starred with someone that our listeners might recognize. Uh, he co-starred with a, a lady by the name of Jessica Tandy in that movie. And his mother uh, brought Rowdy, Roddy, Rowdy, <laughs> his mother brought Rowdy, Roddy. <laughs> Roddy and his sister to the U.S. at the beginning of World War II. <clears throat> and he began to get other roles in, in other films. Um, one of his most notable <clears throat> Excuse me. One of his most notable roles was in a John Ford movie called How Green Was My Valley, and that was in 1941. That that movie actually won an Oscar in 1941. I've never seen How Green Was My Valley. Jimbo, you? Uh, any idea hmm. what that? No. Nope. Never even heard <laughs> Apparently of it. Apparently it was a good movie. It won an Oscar. And uh, here's an interesting fact. Maybe... Uh, maybe Roddy wishes it wasn't in his history, but in 1974, I'm skipping ahead here, several years, several decades, the FBI raided his home and seized his collection of films and television series during an investigation of copyright infringement. And so uh, just buyer beware, you know, that little FBI symbol that you see. (laughs) 
at the beginning of uh, well, what started in the '80s with the videotapes and what you see in front of uh, movies now, uh, you might uh, have Roddy McDowell to thank for that because the FBI seized all of this um, private collection that he had, and it actually consisted of 160 16 millimeter prints and over a thousand video cassettes. The value of the films was conservatively at this time assessed at five million dollars by uh, representatives of the movie industry. The actor was not charged well, and agreed to cooperate with the FBI. Jabot, do you? Well, well, that's very interesting because you said that they seized 16 millimeter prints? Yeah. And he had So that, you're talking too. about the actual... You're talking about the actual... Yeah, the reels, right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so some of that probably had a lot of value to it. I mean, if he had something like the Wizard of Oz in the can or something like that or... Or, you know, uh, what is it, the Citizen Kane. I mean, was he just a collector of movies or was it his movies that he had? That's what I didn't understand because you said his collection. So I didn't know of his TV shows. So I didn't know if it was the movies and TV shows that he had been in or if it was a grander scheme of everything. No, I, I think it was a grander scheme. And then uh, let me read on a little bit. McDowell told the FBI that he had transferred many films to videotape in order to conserve space. And because tape was longer lasting than film and subsequently subsequently had sold or traded the prints, plus other prints of movies that he had lost interest in to other collectors. So basically he was transferring it to videotape, it sounds like, and then he would you know use it as he saw fit. And if he got tired of it, he would trade it or give it or sell it to someone. So it's kind of like taking your DVD collection and putting it all digitally now, yeah, basically. Yeah, exactly. He said that he collected the films due to his love for cinema and to help protect the movie's heritage. McDowell also said mm. that he was uh, he was being in possession of prints of his own films allowed him to study his acting and improve his craft. So his explanation was, look, I, I put all these films uh, on videotape and I want to study so I can enhance and improve my craft by you know going back and studying. Um, he, he's actually studying his own movies, according to exactly. that. He's, he's watching his own performances. Yep. And so he explained that he believed that he was not in violation of copyright as he was not showing the film for profit, nor trying to make a profit when selling his prints as he charged only what he remembered the price he himself paid. So he's saying, look, yeah, I sold some of them, but I only sold them for what I paid for them. So it's basically the transaction's a wash. And I guess, uh, let me read down here, he wasn't the only one. McDowell was forthcoming about individuals that he had dealt with on the black market and also named Rock Hudson, Dick Martin, and Mel Torme as other celebrities with film collections. So he kind of he kind of threw those threw those guys under the bus a little bit well, with the FBI. You know, and, and, and I'm, if I'm the FBI and he uses the term black market, guess what? <laughs> Guilty. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so apparently the, the FBI, it looks like from this little uh, snippet here, that the FBI kind of had an arrangement with him. And, you know, they're like, look, you tell us what you got, what it's worth, and, you know, so on and so forth. And we won't charge you with a, a copyright infringement crime, but you got to become, you know, forthcoming with... Uh, other people that you, maybe you've dealt with. you got to give us information, basically, which is kind of what the FBI does anyway. But enough about uh, Roddy McDowell. Jimbo, uh, did you have anything that you wanted to add? As um, I do. Go ahead and keep talking for a second. Uh, I need to look this up real sure. quick. Sure. Um, um, I, I had it on my phone, but I'm obviously Skyping with you. So yeah, no problem. I need to pull it up here so I can make sure I got my facts straight real quick. Let me, uh, let me just read a little bit of trivia. Uh, from the episode, Marcuson mentions that uh, in the episode that they traveled 35 million miles to Mars. And again, we've touched on this before. 
Obviously, the space program was in its infancy. This is in 1960. So the numbers that we've given out in other episodes as we talk about space travel, of course, uh, there are going to be rough estimates and they may not always be 100% accurate. The, the distance between Earth and Mars ranges between 36 million and 250 million miles due to both having slightly elliptical orbits and different lengths of time to orbit the sun. So I thought that was kind of that was interesting that it could be from 36 million miles to 256 million miles or 250 million miles. That's a huge difference just when you uh, take into account the different elliptical orbits that both planets have. You know, you, you send a spaceship out from Earth to Mars and, you know, it might be 35 million miles. If you hit it right, it might be 250 million miles, depending where they are in their orbits around the sun and how far apart or how close they are in those orbits. I thought that was kind of an interesting piece of trivia. Did you find it, Jimbo? All right. Yeah, I found it. So this is this is the story. Um, this is this is this is going to be a tough read for me because it, it shows um, how evil men can be. So uh, we all know if you've watched this episode that at the end, Sam Conrad is is in the zoo attraction mm-hmm. due to him being uh, declared, uh, you know, uh, an alien, if you will, on Mars. Mm-hmm. In real life. A gentleman by the name of Ota Binga, O T A B E N G A, who was a four foot eleven African uh, American man, was put on display at the Bronx Zoo in New York in 1906. Yeah, um, with there was monkeys in there with him. Um, basically, he went out on an elephant hunt, and when he came back, his entire family had been slaughtered. Um, and he was picked up and so he's basically kidnapped uh, basic right ba- yeah. yes um uh, let me see uh let me find the rest of it so basically um he was sold he was picked up by a missionary man um who was who who was in contract with somebody back in the states to bring back uh, a group of pygmies or whatever and he was sold for i believe it said a pound of salt or traded for a pound of salt and a, like a spool of cloth or something. Wow. Um, and so he brought him back to the States um, with, like, I believe, uh, three or four other gentlemen. Um, and they they actually went traveling around. I believe it was at the World's Fair. And um, now some of this is from memory. I'm trying to pull this up. I, I don't have the same article in front of me that I was reading last night, so bear with me. Um, so then in he was there was a, a group of... Um, he got basically uh, taken to New York, and he got a job with the zoo where he would be helping feed and clean the animals and all that. Well, he, he they finally went into the monkey cage or whatever, and um, if you look online, if you look up the OTA, B-E-N-G-A, you'll see the picture of him like holding some monkeys and stuff. And um, but he he's they somebody seen him in there cleaning one day and it, he became a, a crowd attraction like the, the the crowd just gathered around so they used they exploited his um, stature to make money in that market. Well, there was another uh, group um, of, of Christian men clergy who basically adopted him and pulled him out of there, and um, he went and uh they took him out of there so basically he became a free man he went back to the congo um, where he was from 
and it was only a few short uh he decided that he didn't fit in over there so he came back to america and it was only a few short years later i believe he was only 33 i think or in 1933 one of the two that he committed suicide um, because basically from a broken heart and from uh, uh you know just being the way he was treated now i say that um, because that fits in with the title of this episode, right. that people are like all over. Today, we still see racism. Um, we still see people treated uh, differently from how they look, um, how they are. You know, people are different. But they still have the same people, have the same actions towards other people who are not of the same race, same color, everything else. So I thought that was very heartfelt and very eye-opening so when i watched this movie i actually felt really really bad so eric go yeah ahead. i was um vaguely familiar with the story that you just told i i had read it in connection with um the the people in the zoo or or maybe even uh evolutionary theorists at the time used him as an exploitation or a verification to support their thinking on evolution the theory of evolution they they right. used him as kind of a prop in order to sort of support their uh to spread the the theory of evolution in the early 1900s yeah well and you know like the even even the sign that we see in the episode he had a sign outside of the cage um and it said the african pygmy oda binga age 23 years old or 23 years height four foot 11 inches weight 103 pounds Brought from the Kazai River, it's K-A-S-A-I River, Congo Free State, South Central Africa. So once you once you look at this, um, and I don't know if Rod Sterling uh, meant to do this. Right. Uh, I kind of think he was probably familiar with sure. it. Um, and I think just the way that Rod Sterling went through episodes, and he was very meticulous, and he, he was thinking of things way beyond. And I think I wonder. If that is why, one of the reasons why that he wanted the rights to make something like this, uh, this episode and pay such a high price is to get this message out there. That's good. That's a good um, point. I don't think it's, be, I don't think it's behind the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just wanted to bring attention to that too. So if people aren't familiar with that, that they read up on that story and get familiar with it and you can draw conclusions from that to, to, to today's standards by any means. So yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there. I thought that was very very interesting because I went on a deep dive after I got off work this morning for about an hour or two just reading about him and man my heart was breaking for the guy yeah um, and just to be treated so badly that you had to end up taking your own life I said no but nobody deserves that you know what I mean yeah. so I just wanted to throw that out there um, because uh, I it's just a message that needs to be heard so I wanted to make sure we threw that out there in this podcast yeah that's- um, a couple of uh, a couple of errors that we that we see in this movie. Uh, several boom mics are seen at several different times, or the shadow of them. Uh, when Conrad walks into the living room after banging on the front door, you can see the shadow of the boom mic and its operator. <laughs> okay. uh, as Conrad roots through the shambles of the ship just after crashing to Mars, a boom mic shadow is visible. Um, another goof, if you will, uh, when everyone enters the house, tape can be seen on the floor so the actors can hit their marks. Okay. Um, when... Um, there's some uh, at the end of the at the end when squeezing the bars of the cell the bars move uh, inward and up and down and there's something that people call a, an error or goof but uh, you can you can make the argument so when Conrad tries to open the door exiting his new dwelling he grabs the front door handle and pulls and pushes on it several times 
When he does, you can see the adjoining wall move back and forth, yeah, uh, seeming to indicate it's part of a set. Yeah, I, I noticed uh, that. Not an actual wall. However, uh, since the Martians slapped that structure together pretty much overnight, <laughs> um, you can say it's just a fake dwelling in a zoo, so there's every reason it would be flimsy, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, other than that, let me see if I have anything else real quick. Eric, you got anything else? Uh, just in questions and observations, um, you know, we go back to the, the spaceship as it crashed and landed, and uh, Marcuson um, gives, or excuse me, Conrad gives Marcuson um, that injection. Just something that popped in my mind is really like, what do you think that was? Do you think it was pain meds? Or sleeping aid because when he wakes up from it, he says, "Well, he says something funny." When I I looked this up a little bit on like some medical websites, he says, "I feel like I'm busted up inside or something like that, and I might have basically saying I got internal bleeding." And I'm thinking, "Well, how?" Is he you? did say he said, "I'm bleeding. I, I'm bleeding on the inside. I can feel it. I do believe yeah. this is exact." Word. Okay, so you, yeah, and I'm like, "Well, how do you, how would you know if you had internal bleeding?" And I guess there there are symptoms when I went back and looked it up online, right? Uh, one of which like vomiting, uh, skin discoloration, just a few examples. But I, I that struck me when I saw that. I was like, "Well." How would he know they had internal bleeding? Because you hear about people all the time dying from internal bleeding, and they get to the hospital too late because they don't know. But he right. innately knew that he had internal bleeding, and I, and I thought, well, I was just wondering what the injection was. Maybe maybe it was to calm him down or to help him to sleep or pain meds or something like that uh, for Marcuson. But uh, that that was just well. Here's my a little thing that stuck. Here's out. my observation to here's my observation and question to you. When he exits the ship, mm-hmm. this is Conrad. Right. They go in and grab the body of the other astronaut, right? And they say what they were going to bury him. Yeah, they do. They say they're going to bury your friend. Okay. My thing is, if they went through the length of caging this guy, I don't think they ever buried him. I think they probably dissected him. Possibly. Maybe did a little. Yep. I think I think they probably would have, because let's think about it. If alien an alien ship crashed on this Earth, um, Area Fifty One, Area Fifty One, <laughs> right? Um, and there was a dead alien and there was a live alien. I think us as humans would do the exact same thing. We would put the alien on exhibit somewhere um, once the world was ready to handle that kind of information. And I think that the other one would be dissected and to see how different they are than humans. Um, and everything else, and I thought that was another really, really interesting thought that I had yeah. as I watched this episode. Because I'm like, especially at the end when the twist came, I was like, there is no way that they just buried this guy. There's just no way. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a good. Maybe once they were done with him, maybe. Yeah, that was a good observation. My other uh, observation that I wrote down was Marcuson's optimism that people are just like us remains even until his death, but it ultimately leads to Conrad's captivity. So that positive outlook, you know, because Conrad is very cynical and skeptical in the beginning, but uh, Marcuson's positive attitude sort of wins him over, especially when he meets the Martians initially and they seem really nice. Obviously, it's a whole ruse to deceive him so that they could put him in captivity. But because he finally believes kind of Marcuson's, you know, philosophy, it ends up costing him his freedom and he's in captivity because of it. But see, I you can take that two ways. One, um, and I don't know if you caught the, well, I th- you you mentioned it earlier, but um, when Tina 
sees him in the cage, what does she do? She looks like she's about to cry and she walks away. She's very conflicted. So yeah. you could take you you could take that as people are like all over with emotions like that. Yep. You can take it um, the other way where uh, uh, Marguson was like, yeah, people are like all over. They're curious, you know. They're they're generally good people. Um, all that. So you could take it from that perspective. You could take it from uh, Conrad's because Conrad was like, man, they're they're people are not alike all over. They're different, which. That makes them different, which makes them alike all over, too. Um, so, basically, that they're evil and they will do things, you know, like he didn't want to leave the ship because we don't know what's out there. So, the fear of the unknown. So, you could take it from his that people are alike all over. So, I think there's different aspects of people are alike all over in this episode that you can draw from. From Tina having the emotions. From the aliens. Basically, hey, we want to see what this guy knows or what he what he does in his natural habitat. Uh, same thing they would do to us if or if we were caught by an, an earthling. Um, you could take it from Marcuson's, uh, 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 perspective, or you could take it from Conrad's perspective. I think there's different, different ways you could look at the people are like all over just from this episode. Yeah. I think finally, I don't know. I think in the finality of it, although we're left with Conrad's viewpoint, I think we're left with, yeah, if, if man is left to his own devices or Martians in this matter, they're going to do exactly what we as human beings due to other human beings even not even aliens we uh we're going to do the same things to them i mean you just you just um with the what's his name again the the african uh man uh, uh, yeah um i didn't want to mispronounce it and we see that in the life of of Odabenga, that human beings not only do horrible things to uh, aliens in this case or vice versa but we do it to our own uh, human beings and I think we're kind of left with that in the in his final exasperated cry people are alike everywhere um, right do you do you think um, do you think that they got the idea of putting him in the zoo from the their own human subconscious or do you think they already knew about the Martians did they mm-hmm. subconsciously wanted to do it uh i don't know from the from the humans oh i see what you're saying do you think oh, they got okay. that idea from the humans the whole zoo aspect oh. from the human mind well that's good that's good that you pulled that out. i hadn't even thought about that uh, very possibly yeah because they he can map the obviously the martians can map the minds of the humans and yeah i mean that would be a good explanation of uh how they got the idea yeah i hadn't thought of that but one other just this is this isn't as deep of a dive but just a little observation too that i why did Conrad dab the whiskey behind his ears? Did you notice that? Like, he makes his drink, and he's happy, and he has a cigarette. And then, like, I was like, that's weird. I've never really seen somebody do that. And then I did a little bit of a deep dive about it. And Actually, they, they, they do that a lot in older movies. Do they really? I hadn't uh, noticed. If you've ever wa- yeah, if you've ever watched it, it's kind of like perfume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a cologne, you know I, what I mean? I hadn't noticed that before, and I was like, that's kind of strange. So I looked it up, and I guess it's all about the... Uh, sight, smell, and sound, and touch—it's kind of connecting, I guess, with like the whiskey on a cerebral or to heighten the senses. Sometimes people take expensive—I think it was scotch in this uh, episode—but well, scotch or whiskey, and they'll dab it behind their ears to sort of get the fuller experience of all of the senses. I was like, wow, I didn't know that because it looked very strange to me when I first saw. It. I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> right. Um, something else real quick is the living room set on the, is, is the same one seen in the Twilight Zone, Third from the Sun. Um, 
It's also a readdressed version of George's living room from the time machine in 1960. So I wanted to make sure I threw that in there. So Eric, what did you think of this episode? Um, I thought it was good. Um, again, I don't think it made my, I have my list here. I don't think it made my top 10 list. Uh, I thought it was very, this one was pretty deep and thought provoking, obviously on many different levels, um, from out, you know, from the outside looking in, of course, that's what makes this, the twilight zone so great is these timeless, like truths or theory, philosophies and things, they kind of hold up. They're not afraid to touch on... He wasn't afraid to touch on sensitive subjects. And I think he fought to keep... And he fought to not let um, um, other people in the industry, outsiders, uh, people who had all the money and controlled uh, a lot of the production, and even sponsors. He wouldn't allow the sponsors to strip away the, um, the main thrust and theory and philosophy that he had going into these episodes and Rod fought for those things and he fought for the integrity and I think it really shows and I think that's why these episodes they stand the test of time because he did all those things early on and right yeah, yeah it's it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a twilight zone I had the twilight zone twist in it obviously yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it's going to crack I don't think it's going to crack my top 10 but it was really well done and then but once you start looking at some of the other stuff that was that had happened in history, like with Oda Benga, for example, it really opens your eyes, uh, and it makes me appreciate Rod Serling that much more from just the fact that um, he may not have even known about right. it. I'm sure he had to have known about it. I, I mean, I'm sure he had to. It's not just a story, unless he unless the people that wrote that short story knew about it, and that's how why they wrote theirs. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But I mean, once you see that, and then you see the ending of that, then it really, really hits home. Um, it just makes you think a lot more than just it's just a Twilight Zone episode that there really was a really good message in this episode and I really like that yep. and I really appreciate yeah. that well um, this episode's coming down to a close the next episode episode 26 will be uh, Execution I do believe is the name of it um, I won't ruin anything but I think we're probably going to have a difference of opinion on this one Are we? So. <laughs> well, you know me and the time think- the time travel episodes I love them I love them all I Even know if they're poorly you're done. Back to the Future geek. Yeah, back, I, I watched back. To, by the way, I watched Back to the Future two the other day at work. Terrible movie. Well, but we'll talk about I that. Mean, at another that time. was the. I would say that's the more inferior uh, movie in the trilogy. Although I always, although although it has probably the best scenes with the hoverboard. I always wanted a hoverboard. Yeah, of course, remember in grade school we all wanted that hoverboard. Of course, so. who didn't? Well. Well, this episode's coming to a close, and that's wrap. Eric, take it away and cut. Species of animal brought back alive. Interesting similarity in physical characteristics to human beings. In head, trunk, arms, legs, hands, feet. Very tiny, undeveloped brain. Comes from primitive planet named Earth. Calls himself Samuel Conrad. And he will remain here in his cage with the running water and the electricity and the central heat. As long as he lives. Samuel Conrad has found the Twilight Zone.